Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I mean, I, I can't recall in the years I've been working a crime quite as bad as this one. This is like the nightmare of, of parents. I mean, he threatened to slit their throats. He threatened to kill their parents. So you can imagine a six and nine-year-old, and, and you're being told he's going he's gonna to kill you. And again, it was Judge Peter Carney. He said the offences were just too serious to consider a reduction in the maximum sentence, and he sentenced them to life. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. They are the killers and the rapists deemed so dangerous that they are serving life sentences behind bars. But what does life mean in Ireland? And while the sentence is mandatory in murder cases, how does a sex offender reach the maximum term lockup? Today, I'm talking to journalist Eamon Dillon about the 350 prisoners doing life behind bars, about the gangland trigger men on the promise of blood money who found themselves counting the costs of their chosen career, about the evil rapists whose crimes abhorred society, and about the parole board and what it will mean for those looking for early release. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Eamon, I imagine the most frequent question you're asked when it comes to work is, what does a life sentence mean in Ireland? Well, it's been, a, I suppose, a movable feast over the years. Um, there was some research done recently by uh, someone far more academic than either of us. And believe it or not, some of the life sentences in the early, se- in the early 70s, people were getting out after seven and a half years in eight years. Uh, and then I cer- certainly when we were starting out in the Sunday world or not starting out in the Sunday world, but when we were first joined the Sunday world, I think kind of the average lifers would have been doing 11 to 12 years. That would have been sort of around 2000. Um, and, and recently enough, I, in my head, I had the idea that it was around 18 years. But now it turns out it's something like 22 years is seems to be the average life sentence. So it's, it's creeping up the whole time. I think it, and you, you can argue it's not that people are getting tougher. I think that sometimes I suppose it's the value of life is being is being recognised more that you know we've come on as a society 
you know, in that intervening time. And as much as, you know, you know, as, as much as everything else is, as you know, people's lives and the effect that crime has on them is, is is taken as being more serious. And it's not necessarily that we've become kind of Texan style. It's lock them up and throw away the key. I think it's a recognition of like the pain that, that victims go through and it never ends. And I mean, I know we've both done interviews over the years with families of people, you know, who, who have a relative who've been murdered. And it's like, it just happened yesterday. And, you know, whether it's a cold case from the 1970s or something from last year, it's something that doesn't leave a family. And I think that's been recognised probably more likely by the, the Minister for Justice who until now has been signing off on, on who gets out and, you know, when 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 they can be released. Uh, so, so I think, yeah, so to, to answer your question, it's, at the moment it's about 22 years I mean, the longest, I think, at the moment in there is John Shaw, who's in since 1976 or something like that. And he was one of two Englishmen, him and Jeffrey Evans. They arrived in Ireland at the time with the with the plan to kill a woman every week. Um, and they unfortunately did manage to kill two women before they were caught. So, I mean, you know, and that was, that was so, I mean, he's in jail since then. Jeffrey Evans pretty much died in prison. He, he was, I think, one of the first people that they used an electronic tag on when he was in a coma in hospital. And why were they in so long, like, compared to other people? I think it's, it's a recognition of the fact that their crimes were so horrendous. I mean, they were, they were basically two serial killers, you know, that, that arrived in this country with the, express, you know, with the express intent to use their freight to kill a bird every week. So, I mean, it was, it was just, it was just the, the, I suppose, the unreconstructed, it was just a pure evil nature of the pair, uh, what they went out on. And how can you ever say that someone like that is ever safe to release, even, even if they're elderly at this stage? And I mean, like, as far as I know, Evans is in Arbor Hill and recently had a, a couple of a, a couple of days out escorted visit, you know. So whether that's reward for good behavior or whether it's, uh, you know, they're getting ready to release him remains to be seen. But I mean, like, the, like we did have some characters in the Irish prison system that were 40 plus years. There's one famous guy who's since passed away, Jimmy Ennis, who killed somebody, I think it was in the late 60s. But I mean... He, he literally came out of jail after being done for assault and badly beating up someone. And I think within days had killed the person who gave evidence against him. So, I mean, there was a good reason why he, he never came out. I remember it must be 50, 15 or more, 20 years ago, even at this stage, we photographed him doing hedging work around, I think, Avoca or somewhere like that in Wicklow, where he was getting out on day release from, from uh, Shelton Abbey, the open prison there. So, like, but now, yeah, definitely Shaw's the longest. He's certainly the only person from the 1970s. There's a handful in from the 1980s. I think that there's, a, there's, a, there's definitely a few who are doing 30-plus years in prison. And, and there's some who are definitely going to be, they're not there yet, but they're going to be doing 30-plus years. I regularly see Malcolm MacArthur around the city, hopping on and off buses, dressed very dapper. Obviously, when they are released, they're not allowed to do any interviews or communicate uh, you know, with the media, he has, uh, I did approach him once and he told me that under no uncertain terms, he was in, in no position to do an interview ever because they're released, of course, on license. So when they are released from their life sentences, if they commit another crime or if they break the, whatever their bail bonds are, they're straight back in again. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's the thing I think people forget about. The life sentence is just that. Now, Having said that, I did recently check this out because um, I was wondering if, you know, somebody who's released on license, are they allowed to leave the country? But apparently they can eventually if they're, you know, once they, they meet all the requirements of, of, of their, their release conditions that they turn up and they meet their parole officer and 
they you know whatever they they find themselves work or they they settle down or you know to become upstanding members of the community again eventually they can work their way towards being pretty much a normal person once again and can take off and go live somewhere else but i think for for a lot of them there is that prospect of uh, you know you're going to go back inside if you're found drunk on the street by the guards which does happen um sorry i can't think of now but there was one recent case where you know there was a guy in for a long time and he was out he got out in 2006 or 2008 and and then in 2014 or 15 he was back inside again and he's still inside you know having you know basically haven't gotten to a drunken fight on on the street so that was enough for him to have his his life sentence reactivated so it is it is something that's held over them for for quite some time and they have to work pretty hard to show that they're you know that they're safe to be allowed back into the community and reformed characters now helen mcintee the current justice minister has been signing off um any of those releases will that continue with the situation with the parole board which is changing its setup and it is becoming an independent entity no it doesn't look like it i mean the, 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 the new the parole board has actually been set up and it is now independent of the minister. Uh, I think there's there's 12 or 14 board members who, you know, make the final decision on whether or not somebody should get parole. Now, they have changed or, well, they haven't changed it yet, but they are talking about the um, in, increasing before they can be considered for parole. Now, it was seven years and it's up to 12. And I think Kevin McEntee then was talking about legislation that would push that even further for, you know, for particularly you know, nasty crimes, particularly heinous crimes. So, you know, that hasn't happened yet. It's, in, it's, it's up in the air. Um, so, I mean, it'll go before, I think it's three of the, of the board make a decision. And these are made up of, I had a look through the, the, the people who are currently on the board. So you have, you know, people from the probation service, people from the Irish prison service, you have retired uh, chief superintendents, you have a, a current Garda superintendent, you have a, a couple of lawyers, a couple of judges, this, this sort of thing. So it's that kind of, it's across the board, but it's at that kind of senior management level rather, I, I would think, rather than, you know, people who have been necessarily on the ground who might have been, you know, working with them. And I presume the IPS, well, not that I presume, I'm told that the IPS do have quite, a, um, you know, an input in it, in that you, you will have officers or you know staff members or whoever you know psychologists in the prisons who are dealing with these people and that they they can put in their own reports to the parole board um, but I, I think one of the things that they have to keep an eye on is where the families of the victims come into this uh, and and basically you have to register as being next of kin you know you have to you have to make the argument that you are related first of all and you have to prove all that and then you become the, the point of contact for your whole family you know, on, on the person, you know, on the person who's serving life as, you know, as a result of killing one of your relatives and that you're then kind of, you're going to be consulted. And I mean, at the moment, the basically there they were, you know, up until now, you were basically getting a letter to say that there was, um, uh, you know, that, that so-and-so was gonna, is, is, has made an application before the parole board, which people used to find terrifying. I mean, we've, we've all spoken to various people. I know the relatives of, the woman killed by Ray O'Donovan down in Ennis. Like, you know, I've, I've spoken to some of some, uh, the, the victim's family there. And, you know, it's traumatic for them. And, and you know, uh, you know Jeffrey uh, Warren Dumbrell's uh, uh, victim's family, I was in contact with them. And again, you know, it, they just found it, a, you know, a frightening prospect that, you know, that the person who killed in, in, in the Dumbrell's case, the person who killed their father, you know, is, is going to get out. You know, and at the time... Like he murdered that time, 
he had just finished another sentence for for a violent crime. So I mean, like there's some people, you know, you wonder why they're even being considered for for parole, and the idea of putting families through that kind of stress, I think, is unnecessary. So I don't know whether this is going to work. This new parole board system because uh, I mean it is taking it out of the hands of the politicians which is you can argue is good in one sense that you know it's not a matter of public opinion or mob rule but on the other side of it then you know where, where do you know where does public opinion come into this I mean you know if if you know if, if a member if a, if a single family says no we don't want to see that killer you know ever be released I mean maybe maybe they're wrong you know if if the victim in some cases you know, started the fight that got him and he was killed in it. You know, you kind of go, well, you can make the argument, well, the killer, you know, he didn't start it, but he did, you know, but he certainly finished it. Uh, whereas as opposed to, you know, a complete stranger attack by some, you know, sex killer, you, you know, it, it, there's a clear black and white difference there, but there's everything in between. So, you know, I, I can see some serious controversies, you know, coming down the line when the parole board say we got to release, you know, so-and-so and, you know, we're kind of we're writing the stories with the whole history of what these people did. Everything is in their hands, really. I have some first enough hand experience of parole boards through Joey O'Callaghan, who was the subject of my book, The Witness, and then the podcast. And his mother, Mary, is actually the point of contact for the prison. Every time there was a release date, she would get a letter. And obviously that would cause a huge amount of stress amongst the family. Brian Kenny and Thomas Hinchin are serving life sentences for the murder of Jonathan O'Reilly. And Joey obviously was the witness whose evidence put them away. So he remains frightened for his life, that they will come for him. Um, But what I found particular in it was every time there was a parole application, it was up to Joey and other members of his family and his victim's family to write in to the parole board to put their case as to why Brian Kenny or Hinchin shouldn't be released. And that was very traumatic for them having to, you know, bring back up the past and everything that had gone on. But also, particularly for Joey, was the fact that those letters were given on to the inmates. So Brian Kenny and Thomas Hinchin were getting his letters and he had to be very careful and remain so what he puts in them, um, you know, so as he doesn't reveal any personal information and all the rest of that. And and that is something that other families have complained of as well, that it's sort of, it's up to them to keep the killer in prison. Um, but yeah, at the same time, they are the people who have the particular interest, I suppose. So there's a, you know, it's two sides to that. And that is still the system. Uh, I mean, looking at the, mm. uh, the parole board um, website earlier on today, and, and it does warn, you know, the next of kin or the, the point of contact that, you know, what you write to us will be passed on. Mm. So that hasn't changed, unfortunately. And that's obviously for some sort of a right to reply situation, or I could never quite understand it, why why those personal letters would have to be handed on. Well, I suppose, in, in a, you know, it's, it's, in the, it's in the interest of justice that, you know, it's like discovery in any case that, you know, you need to know what you're, what you're defending yourself against. So, I mean, you, you, there might be a better way of doing it so that families don't feel as exposed that, you know, that they're, that their letters or whatever is then turned into, a, you know, a parole board officer's affidavit, which then could be passed on or something like that to the prisoner. So it's not Nicola Talent or Eamon Dillon who is saying, keep this man locked up. It's somebody saying members of the family have told me that they want to see this person, you know, and it's not as individualized in that sense. Yeah, I think that could certainly help it. I remember Joey once saying to me that he hated the idea of Brian Kenny touching his handwriting or touching the piece of paper that that he had held. Um, 
But let's go back to the lifers and who they are in prison. Um, in the Irish Prison Service, there are more than, or certainly th- more than 300 inmates serving life. It's about 350, including Brian Kenny um, and, and Thomas Hinchin, who killed Jonathan O'Reilly in 2004. I mean, they're... they're like when you when you think about it now, it's a long, long time. I mean, I mean, you know more about them than I do, um, but they were like seriously dangerous criminals, and they're they're away for a, you know for for quite some time now at this stage. I, I think that's kind of it's kind of the ongoing I think theme of, of you know gangland murders. You know, when you look at some of them, when you go through the list, say from you know the mid nineties, you see there's an awful lot of unsolved murders. But I think part of that, and certainly in the case of the Crumlin uh, Drimna feud is that some of the, the killers themselves are dead and they have been killed. You know, the likes of Paddy Doyle being shot dead in, in south of Spain. Like, you know, with him, how many, you know, unsolved murders went to the grave with him? Uh, and and there's there's more than, than just um, Paddy Doyle. Uh, but, I mean, like, like in terms of the gangland stuff, like the guys who, who carried out like one of the most famous murders in, in, in the Limerick feuding, uh, which is Kieran Keane, I mean, the, the, the five... The five men that were were sentenced, you know, for his for his murder, and that was the famous night of the long knives. They lured them out as a double cross, you know. Himself and Owen Tracy were stabbed, and um, Kieran Keane was shot dead. And the five of those, there was, I think, it was Judge Peter Carney was 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 the the trial judge, and he commented at the time that you know you can't really expect to be released any time, so long as the feud violence is still going on, and they're still inside, you know, all five of them. The likes of you know Desi Dundon. David Stannard, James McCarthy. I think there's two of them now are are in an, an open prison. There's certainly one of them. I think James McCarthy now is in, um, is in the one in Black Lion in in, in Cavan Lock and House. So I mean he he's on he's on the road to I suppose a, a, certainly an easier regime. What year did that kick off in? When was Kieran Keane killed? Um, I think it was two it was two thousand and two, uh, and and they were they were jailed almost like w- within a year. Um, those those five guys but I mean it just it set off like you know you know yourself I mean it just set off a, a whole wave of murders and I mean like outside of Dublin um, Limerick ha- probably has the most lifers doing time for gangland murders I mean you have um, like Gar- uh, like Gary Campion was, was a contract killer you know for the gangs down there um, and he's serving a double life sentence so he, he was he shot dead the innocent bouncer Brian Fitzgerald again and it was another very high profile case allegedly he wouldn't let members of the Dundon gang in to sell drugs in, in the nightclub he worked. Um, and then he was also the man behind, there was a fellow called uh, Frankie Ryan was shot dead in Moy Ross. Um, and I remember that the, the evidence at the time was something like, you know, he, he knew him and he got into the car with him. And, you know, Ryan had no idea that the guy sitting in and got into the car behind him was about to kill him and he blew his brains out. So, like, I mean, he's in, like... When was that? When you say he got a double life sentence, were they two separate trials for him? There were, or? There were two separate trials. There were, there were completely two separate trials. So I suppose the idea there is it's belt and braces from the guard's point of view. If for some reason there's a, he wins an appeal on one of them, he still has the other sentence, the other life sentence to, to play out. And when it comes to his parole, obviously that'll be more difficult for him of to, course, to yeah. get. And, and again, I, am, I imagine he'll have to do separate you know, he'll have to do separate um, parole applications that he might get parole for one murder, but not the other. So, I mean, like, I mean, so, I mean, he certainly looks like he's going to be one of the guys who's going to become, he's going to hit, you know, past the 30 year mark. But as such, it doesn't necessarily mean that he gets 
life for one, he gets life for the other. We're saying that the average sentence is now up to 22 years. It doesn't necessarily mean he will serve 44 years. He will serve. No, well, they're the both running together, yeah, essentially. Yeah. They're both running at the same time or concurrently, as they like to say in court. But they're, they're both running, you know, it's not like one starts yeah. after the other finishes which I'm sure what some people would like to see. But, I mean, it's, yeah. it's you know, and, and there, there was, I mean, there was a bunch, like, you know, I mean, there, there was, um, I mean, there's, there's the Dundon brothers, like, there was, I mean, there's five of them. There's one of them not involved in crime. There's four of them then are, you know, in, in, involved in crime. Jared Dundon is the only one that's not doing life sentence. So, I mean, you have, you have John, Desi and Wayne. Uh, and significantly enough, like, when, like, I mean, Desi's in for the, for the you know, the Kieran Keane murder. But then the other two guys in are both in for, for their parts in, you know, the murders of two innocent men. You, um, uh, Shane Gagan, who was the, <clears throat> the innocent rugby player who was mistaken for another gang. Somehow they seem to think he was another gangster and, and he was shot dead. And, th- and then you have Roy Collins, who was shot dead. Um, and that, w- that was ordered by Wayne Dundon. That was, a, you know, quite a... That was a, a very interesting trial. That's, that was kind of really what broke the gang, that you had other members of of the gang who basically said they had enough of their violence, enough of their bullying, and, you know, and they kind of, they, they turned state on them and, and, you know, were able to come up with enough evidence to put them away. Now, of course, they weren't the trigger men. You had, you know, young John Dillon was, was you know, was found within hours, arrested within hours. Nathan Killeen was found hiding in an attic hours after the, the Collins shooting as well. So, I mean, they're all serving life as, as well for the same murder. And, of course, Barry Doyle, the brother of the aforementioned Paddy Doyle, who met his end at the hands of the Kinnahans in, in Spain in 2008. But Barry Doyle is serving life um, in relation to his role in the Limerick feud. Yeah, that was the, the Shane murder that was ordered by John Dundon. So that, would, that, that was mm. his part. And Barry Doyle had at the time, he was said to have been taken into the, you know, into the arms as such of the, the Limerick gangsters after his brother's death. And he was sort of down on his luck. And they, it was said that they brought him in and fed him with cocaine and basically gave him a job to do. Um, you know, two brothers was a, an incredible story, really. And early end in in their gangland careers um and he is also i believe in a a relationship uh barry doyle and has been sort of now welcomed into the kinahan fraternity within the prison system all right well he, he doesn't seem to be good at backing winning horses then does he in the long run no when, he when doesn't comes absolutely to that. not you know i mean it's, it's interesting though i mean how many of of you know the hitmen themselves end up being targeted. I mean, that, that seemed to have been a pattern with Eamon the Don Dunn, where a number of his suspected hitmen themselves were targeted. That you know, and not necessarily the the triggermen themselves, but people who were involved. Um, I, like there, there was a, it's Christopher Gitt Gilroy is you know missing, presumed dead, and he was suspected to have carried out a murder uh, for the for the for the Don. So you know, it, it's kind of it's a it's kind of a fast track to a, a short, quick criminal career. You know, I, and I think there's something to that. That um, I suppose, in one sense, there might be criminals out there who kind of think, well, if you show you have you know the the stuff, you know, the courage or whatever you want to phrase it, to to go out and pull a trigger and murder somebody, you know, to make your bones, as they say in the American movies, like I, you know, you know, whether that's a motivation or something, you, you make, you know, I wonder. But like, it also means then that there's people out there thinking we got to be careful of this guy, like he is capable of killing, and that comes to a point then where, you know, we better shoot him before he kind of 
turns his eye on us. Or if you're the guy who's hired him or the woman who's hired him, you just you might decide, look, this guy knows, you know, he, he knows that I was behind that. He's, he's, you know, he's already come back once looking for extra money or help to do this. So he's got to go now as well. So, I mean, it is, you kind of put a target on your own back, you know, apart from the fact that you, you then you might have relatives of the person you murdered who have their own personal reasons for revenge then. So, I mean, you know, deciding to become a, a gangland hitman or hit woman, I think is a, a ticket to nowhere really in the in the long run. And all those decisions that you're talking about there, which are, you know, very stark, but they are the business of gangland and the realities of that world. Uh, kill or be killed. And um, sometimes it can save money and effort to take out uh, an individual. Speaking of money, we've heard over the years, and in particular with the Kinahan Hutch feud, the kind of rates that were being paid for murder. And, you know, they certainly broke all the previous pay barriers. Um, up to 100,000 was on offer for certain uh, individuals to be targeted and killed. But many people who are behind bars were either, you know, on the promise of money. I think probably I would consider the average for a hit to be between 40 and 50,000 for a high profile enough hit. But a lot of people serving life were being offered far less, were looking at wiping out drug debts, which were tiny in the greater scheme of things, and who've literally given away their lives for, you know, that bad decision. Yeah, I mean... I mean, that, that was one thing I suppose that um, love, hate, I think from all those crime journalists felt that they, they got right was the way that, you know, some of these gunmen were just manipulated. They were backed into a corner and they had no choice except to, you know, carry out, you know, the deed of, of taking someone else's life. Um, and there's been a few, like I, when I was going through it there um, in the last couple of weeks, we ran a, a series about lifers in the, in the Sunday world which is online if anyone wants to read them for themselves. But there was some, there's some pretty sad ones in, in one sense. Like, I mean, there is people who get sucked into it for other reasons than, you know, doing it for the money or, or doing it for the kudos. You know, it, there, it's either threats or misplaced loyalty. Or as we know, in, in the case of David Patchell, it was, uh, he owed money. And he shot a guy called Stephen O'Halloran in 2009. And again, it was, you know, he claimed that he was wrongly accused of stealing a gang's cocaine and he was forced to kill, kill O'Halloran, which he did. And while he was in custody then, his childhood pal, Paul Byrne, who had nothing to do with the murder, he ended up being abducted and his body was left undiscovered for a year. I don't know if you remember that one. His body was found up in, in the Dublin mountains. Um, you know, there's another guy, uh, Jonathan Dunn, similar story. He'd been pressured by gangsters over lost drugs and he, he shot his friend Ian Kenny with a shotgun in 2007. And that, that was an unusual case that the guy like Ian Kenny, he lingered for, I think, about a year or more. Um, he was in a coma. So... I think Dunn was already in, in prison for the shooting. And then uh, when his friend passed away, he, he was put on trial for the murder and convicted of that. And again, you know, it was over. It was over very little. Like, you know, it, there was there were it was particularly, you know, small amount of, of I think, uh, money involved. I did something that, um, that, that, that there was a, a, another another guy. Um, uh, I think it was kind of the Crumlin Drimna area. Uh, Warren Graham. Now, he's he's in Lock and House. He's been in prison since 20, 2010. Um, and I remember, if I remember correctly, at the time of the trial, there was the the uh, the, the Joyce gang from Kulak, uh, who was himself was since shot dead. That Warren was pretty much manipulated into into this kind of uh, bogus drug deal, where they were basically going to they were going to steal the drugs off this this other guy or steal the money. It was I can't remember which. And you know, he ended up stabbing a guy to death. Um, now he he actually turned up uh, online recently. He he was uh, speaking to an Oireachtas committee. 
Um, and he was, he was saying that, you know, his life had been transformed through education. And he, 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 he said, I think he finished off saying something like, you know, I, th- I believe a strong majority of prisoners would, would make the most of a decent second chance. But he described his own life as being, you know, pretty chaotic. You know, he, he was he was you know using using drugs at the time and just ended up in this awful situation where, you know, you know, on the face of it, it looked like you know these guys should have backed down and they would have been able to carry out the robbery, and nobody would have got hurt. But unfortunately, they fought back and he stabbed a man to death. And like you know, he's he's now in he's now in prison. What is it, twelve years? When and the chances are he'll be in there for a while yet. You know, despite you know his young age when he went in. So I mean, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of stories like that. I mean. I mean, to go back to the Don, um, if you remember, like there was a, a man, he was done for a double murder there on Pier Street, um, Gary Howard. Uh, and it seems to be, you know, you know, quite a hardened, you know, killer at the age of 24. I mean, there was, you know, there was talks of him being suspect in other murders. And, and but in, in his court, in, in I think it came out, I'm not sure it was the court hearing, but it certainly came out that he was alleging that the Don had put a gun in his mouth. And that, you know, and he was basically no choice except to go out and carry these murders and that he himself at the time felt that he was himself was a target and was going to be lined up. So, you know, here's a guy who was 24 and he's he's in jail and he's going to be in jail for a long time uh, on, on the back of that. Again, you know, he probably saw nothing of it. You know, he probably saw nothing of that cash. And I mean, there, there's, you know, one of the, the Wilsons that was shot dead, you know, the Wilsons, they're a family of, of, of hitmen themselves and John Wilson himself was murdered. And he was shot dead by Keith O'Neill in, in 2012. And it came out there as well that Keith O'Neill, you know, he complained that he never got the 40,000 euro that he'd been promised to, to carry it out. So it's, it's just, you know, like it's just the way that the prisons are, are, are full of people who've made, you know, really bad choices in one after the other and ends up, I suppose this is the pinnacle in a sense that they go as far as taking someone else's life. You mentioned there the the Crum, the Crumlin and Drimna feud, which of course ran through the year two thousands up until about two thousand and ten. And there's only two people in jail in relation to murders um, that were were assigned to that feud, which took sixteen lives. But there's been far more success in convictions when it came comes to the Kinnahan Hutch feud, which is still you know okay. Thankfully, there haven't been any murders in a while, but I wouldn't think it's over as such if, if either side maybe get an opportunity. But from early on, there was a handle got on that feud that wasn't maybe got on other ones. And I'm just trying to tot up how many are in prison. OK, look, we have said before there's more than 60 members of the Kinahan cartel in prison for various crimes, including money laundering, etc. But for actual murder... And I think the biggest head on the plate there was Fat Freddie Thompson, who, of course, would have been led one side of the Crumlin Drimna feud and became almost blooded in that when he came to the Kinahan Hutch feud. He was somebody who was vastly experienced in organising uh, murders, but he was actually jailed. I was there the day that he was convicted of murder, and it really was a celebratory moment for everybody because such a dangerous individual who had you know, certainly no plans to reform and had been involved in so much tragedy and violence over his life. But he and Lee Canavan are serving prison terms, life terms for the murder of Dahi Douglas. Um, David Hunter, Eamon Cumberton, Johnny Kyo, Regina Kyo, uh, 
five there that I have noted that are in for murder as such. There's many more in for conspiracy to kills where the would-be victim survived because of the actions and the intelligence levels coming into the Gardaí. But um, that's quite a lot. That's quite a heavy toll. You have Tussie Fox as well, of course. Tussie Fox, yeah, of course. So that's six of them. Yeah, and when you look at it, you know, when you consider how many are in, like there's very few of them, you know, relatively speaking, it's what, 10% or less than 10% are doing life. But there's so many. I mean, there was other jail sentences. The guy who bought the phone or got the car, you know, in the Cumberton, or sorry, in the bar murder, weren't aware of that. And I mean... And even if you look at, at, at Regina Kyo, I mean, her role in it was pretty minor. Well, you can argue it was pretty minor and she's serving life. I mean, she basically persuaded a friend of hers to allow the two men to use the flat to keep a lookout for, for Gareth Hutch when he arrived in so they could shoot him. And she left, a, I think she left a pair of, um, of, of, of gloves or she left, you know, surgical gloves in, in the flat for them to use. And, and that was the extent of her role. But that's considered in, in Irish law, it's joint enterprise. You're facilitating someone to... To murder, I think the, I, I can't remember the chap's name, but the guy who bought the phones in 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 the in the bar murder, I think, had no idea like what was going on. And you know, well, he certainly was able to make that argument, and he was successful in court. And so he's serving a much lesser a lesser sentence, even though you could argue that you know the the phones might have played a bigger role than what Regina Kyo did. But the fact that she knew what was going to happen, I think, you know, kind of, and didn't, and obviously did nothing to stop it. You know, is what puts her into that that level of guilt and and it's a life sentence and and you know you're dead right about her Eamon because I I was in court actually when she was convicted as well and Justice Tony Hunt who presides over a lot of those gangland trials he almost felt sorry for her in in handing down his judgment he basically explained that to her that under Irish law you know, there is no lesser charge, you know, in the States and sometimes in the UK, you have various degrees of murder as such. But here in Ireland, it's just one way or the other. And she was charged with that and she was she was convicted of it on the evidence. And so therefore a life sentence and her five children left motherless. Um, and I think she, I think on appeal, she failed as well. Well, you'd imagine this is the sort of issue then now that the parole board will play a role in this where they'll see... Well, Regina Kyo played, you know, a far lesser role, and she might get, she might get parole a lot sooner than than her brother and, and Tossie Fox. But we'll we'll have to wait and see. It could be a few years. We might even be retired by then. Yeah, but I think, I think, oh, well, hope, but uh, kicking back somewhere in the sunshine. But I I have to say, like you know, from a hu- humane point of view, definitely, you know, her decision was bad. She gave up her apartment as a lookout post for somebody's murder. She knew that's what it was for, but at the same time, she didn't pull the trigger. And certainly I do think sometimes when you see people, um, you know, being put away for life when, you know, others who may have had what, what we would consider, civilians would consider, you know, far... I mean, I think sometimes when, when uh, and I know they're changing the sentencing and of it, but plotting to kill, like you just basically didn't get there. You were, <laughs> you had the same mindset, you had the same focused outcome in your head, but perhaps the guards moved in at the last minute and you were arrested as opposed to actually, but I, I would see that as a far more significant crime than maybe somebody who was, and I think she had a history of addiction, etc. as well, gave, gave her, her home up for, for money. Um, the gangland killers are one thing. I think 85 of them make up the 350 
lifer population in prison. But some of these guys that that you wrote about um, that got the maximum sentences uh, involved in sex assault and rapes, my God, their crimes are horrific. And many of them have been there for so long that we've forgotten about them. But um, the first one I think you mentioned in your piece was a guy called Thomas Stokes uh, in jail since 1996. And I think many women would hope that he wouldn't be stepping foot outside for another while. Yeah, I mean, like he was he was 36 years of age when he went into prison in 1996. So I let you do the maths there now to figure out, like, you know, so he's in. You know how in, bad I am he, at that. He's in prison a long time and, and he is not in a he's not in an open prison either at this stage, I can tell you. Um, and what he did was it would, and it, it, there was a, a, another man with him who was, you know, who was somewhat less. I, I think I think less culpable, but they, they picked up a vulnerable twenty-year-old woman. Now at the time, like it's funny reading back, you know, even even if it is the Irish Times in nineteen ninety-seven, the language they use to describe people um, is is quite different to now. But it, it, it appears, according to reports at the time, that the, the vulnerable twenty-year-old woman was, was basically working as a prostitute on the street, um, and they picked her up and they agreed to. You know, she agreed to carry out a sex act, you know, in the car around the corner and that his friend in the car was going to be hopping out before anything would happen. But instead, he drove her up the, the he the, went up to the Wicklow Mountains and, you know, subjected like there was there was horrific detail in the court case, which I don't think we'll go into here. But it was, I mean, it was pretty much pretty, pretty awful stuff. And it went on for two and a half hours. He, he was he, he was you know he she genuinely thought she was going to die. There was quotes like from her to the you know according to the guards. He told me to shut up or he'd bury me. I told him I wanted to go home to my kids and my mother. He kept calling me a tramp. I never thought I'd see another face again. Like he, he stopped for a cigarette break like while he was raping her, um, and you know and it really was it was it was torturous. Um, and then of course it emerged that he had previous convictions that he had done a four year sentence for sexual assault in 1984. And then in England in 1989, he, he got a six-year sentence for threatening to kill his wife when he poured petrol through her letterbox. So, I mean, there's a guy, you know, if, if anyone deserves to be, you know, locked up for a long time, which he has been, you know, I think he, he ticks most of the boxes, certainly, you know, by any, any you know, standard. I mean, it gets such a, you know, such a premeditated, you know, such a cruel, callous, like, and, and I, I have really glossed over, like, what went on. It's far worse if somebody wants to take the time to go, look it up themselves they can but i'm not going to repeat the the, the nature of it um but there, there was a the, believe it or not there, there's a similar character like who's in prison um he, he's a, like a serial rapist a man called david Geraghty. now he's he's age 56 now like from a technical point of view what's interesting is there is that he actually got an indeterminate sentence in the uk in 1998 which is a sentence that they don't do here i mean they were, they were doing this thing they're basically called the whole of life sentence in the uk which I think the European Court said, you you know, you're not actually allowed to do that. You can't sentence someone for their, you know, the rest of their natural life. So he, he actually he's been transferred back, or he got he's got himself transferred at some point back to Ireland. So effectively, he's treated as a lifer. So presume you know he will you know at some point be eligible for parole. Uh, and and the interesting thing again, like you know, this is a guy you know he, he's he, he had a, a career as a rapist. There was a career of two halves that he, he had been jailed in Ireland in the 1980s for four years over seven sex attacks, including rape. He moved to the UK. He married a, a woman who had no idea of his past, had kids. And then he was caught for two rapes. One of them was a 22-year-old French hitchhiker that he picked up and the attempted rape of a pregnant 16-year-old. So, again, another, you know, 
you know, it's just a, another a wonderful baddie. character. You know, the judge described him as a person of an unstable character, likely to commit similar offences in the future. So again, I mean, that's a man who's been in prison, you know, like Stokes. He's been in prison since, since the mid-90s. Since mid and you, you would be expecting that, you know, people like them, they'd be very careful about letting them back out on the street. Absolutely. Hugely dangerous to women, both of those characters. So rape itself as a, as a criminal charge, it carries up to life imprisonment. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, and I, as far as I remember, like, I mean, there's, there's other kidnap as well is, is something that can attract a life sentence. I mean, there's a couple of um, there's there's a couple of of, of different offences which you know when you're in a circuit court and you, you see somebody expecting a three or four year sentence and the judge starts explaining their sentencing regime and says the headline offence or not the headline offence but the you know the highest uh, the the highest sentence for for this crime is life and you can see people sort of blanching very quickly in the thing you know in in, in the box I mean it to, they're rarely given out in this country and I mean. And when I was going through this, I, like I noticed that it was, it was Judge Peter Carney who had, was the judge who had actually sentenced uh, a number of these. Like actually, like Stokes is the first person to have got a, a life sentence for a non-murder, so to speak. But there was another, as far as I can, as I could see, there was one other man who got a life sentence, but he won on an appeal. Um, I remember there was another case there and the man was recently released. He was a, a, a former Polish army officer who attacked and raped a couple in their house in, I think it was Eden Derry. And he he got life as well. I think he he would have been, you know, one of the one of the, I think only the third or fourth that would have got life, or, or even less than that. And and he won on appeal, and that was changed to a fifteen year sentence. I mean, that, that's why you wonder, you know, you, people say, well, why didn't Larry Murphy get life? You know, the, the famous you know Wicklow rapist. Um, you, you wonder, sorry, famous is probably the wrong way to put it. The infamous notorious rapist. Uh, and you wonder why, but he didn't have a previous. So, I mean, that's really how he avoided yeah, it. I mean, yeah. he did get a long sentence. He mm. got 15 years at the time. But you see, again, I think there has to, there has to be that kind of, um, that has to be that previous. I mean, you have another guy from Tipperary, David Power. Now, he was 25 when he launched a random attack on a woman who was on her way home from a nightclub with her boyfriend and went into a Supermax restaurant in Nina in January 2007 while her boyfriend waited for her. She went in to use the toilet and he pushed her inside and again, you know, he attacked her, he, he raped her. It was this very serious, it was a very serious assault. Uh, and then it turns out he'd, he'd been jailed for two other sex attacks in 2001. And one of those victims at, at that time, this is for the previous rape, had said something to, and it was Judge Carney who, who was the dissenting judge in both cases. Um, she had said, like, he was an evil man. I've no doubt he'd re-offend. And I want, I want justice for what he has done to me to prevent it from happening to another woman. So he got five years, he got out again, he did it again. And the same judge said, I gave you a chance before and he jailed him for life. So, you know, you know it's, 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 a, it's a tragic case to think that, you know, there was a chance that, you know, the woman in Nina could have, you know, it could have been avoided, the attack on her. But I suppose, you know, Judge Carney, who since passed away, you know, was sticking to the, you know, he was sticking to the rules. He was sticking to the way judgments are formulated. And, and you know, you, you, can't, you can't blame him. Like in, in that sense, but you know, you can't really see what you can't, they don't have crystal balls, they can't see into the future what way things are going to happen. And to add to the horror of that Super Mac toilet attack, I recall at the time reading that um, the music was blaring and her screams couldn't be heard because of that. Um, not that the rape itself was as horrific as it was, but the idea that you were calling for help and there was probably people milling about buying burgers outside and they just couldn't hear her. 
Um, and just to point out really the difference, I suppose, between somebody getting a life sentence for these sex attacks, be they rape or, or assaults and kidnaps, like you've mentioned, and other, other crimes that do carry this maximum sentence. The difference is that in murder, it's mandatory. So it's not... Actually, they don't even have sentence hearings. They are literally taken down from the dock to serve their life sentence. But these sentences that are handed out by judge by judges, even if you're a veteran uh, in the courts, sometimes you can be slightly confused by them. It's a mathematical uh, decision. They have to look at the maximum, the minimum. They have to look at where the crime is in between those two. And then they have to look at the aggravating factors uh, and the mitigating ones. And, and and as you say, in the case of Larry Murphy, that clearly would have been the fact that he had no previous convictions, hadn't come to the attention of the police before, etc. Um, the Athlone Rapist, one of the worst stories I've ever had to cover in all my days, and I have covered some horrible stories. 2015, two children were attending a party, and this guy, who we've never been able to name because of the identity of the victims, but he lured them from the party and, uh, oh, you'll have to tell the story. Yeah, I mean, this is like, this is an afternoon, this is like a, a kid's birthday party, you know, presumably bouncy castle sort of stuff. And and he, he approached the two girls, six and nine, said that his daughter, his own daughter wanted to come out and play, but she was too shy and would, he, would, he, would they come and try and get her to come out and play with them? And he brought them to a derelict house and it was just horrific, the... You know, like, I mean, just again, I'm just going to gloss over the details because I actually, it, this, it's just horrific. I mean, he threatened to slit their throats. Like, he, he threatened to kill their parents. So you can imagine a six and nine-year-old and, and you're being told, this, you know, this man, you're going to believe him. He's going he's gonna to kill you. And I mean, he, he raped them both. I mean, you know, they, you know presumably in the, in the presence of the other. And it was only at one point then when he left, they were brave enough to, to climb out of the window and to raise the alarm. And if you remember at the time, there was a, a brief period where, you know, the story broke and nobody knew who, who this, this rapist was. And there was a, you know, there was a real, there's a real level of fear. I mean, this is, this is like the nightmare of, of parents. And I mean, and thankfully it is so rare. Like, I mean, it, it barely, you know, this type of attack, you know, barely comes up on statistics. I mean, I, I can't recall in the years I've been working, you know, a, a crime quite as bad as this one now i'll come on to another one in a minute when you can argue which is worse but i i think this is you know it, it is one of the worst and again like he pleaded guilty and he cooperated with the guards and again it was judge peter carney he said the offenses were just too serious to consider a reduction in the maximum sentence and he sentenced them to life and and, and you know it's it's hard to find any reason why you know, any reason you know why the judge was wrong on that and it was appealed to the court and it was upheld so I mean, it was, it was it was as far as the, the legal system, the judiciary is concerned, it was the right decision. When I was down covering that at the time and it had just happened, um, I like people were actually speechless. I was speechless myself. I mean, there was just no words for it. It was just and the little nine year old had tried to protect the little six year old. And oh, I mean, depraved is not the word for it. Did we know anything while he was never named and can't be identified? And that is to protect his victims, Eamon, not him. Um, do we know much about him or his background? There, there, was, a, there was bits. I mean, like he, he had 120 something convictions, but I mean, it was basically drink related, you know, uh, drug addiction related kind of crime. You know, it was all that pretty much nuisance stuff. I mean, he, he certainly wasn't a, he, 
as far as I can remember now, it could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure that there was no serious sexual assaults or rape or anything like that in his history. So whatever happened on that day, I mean, young enough. I mean, he was, I think of his, his early 30s when it happens, like, you know, so, I mean, he, he amassed up all those those criminal convictions and paper looks bad, but I mean, it was pretty much, a, it was, you know, it was stemming from his his addiction and drink problems rather his than... His addictions. And, and usually people with addiction and drink problems like are really to be pitied. And a lot of them that do have these loads of convictions, they are all nuisance stuff and they're public order offences and they're this, that and the other. And it is really as a result of their addiction, their behaviour. So you don't often see somebody in in drug or drink addiction doing something like this. So he, he certainly was a rarity, but no explanations are any sense or meaning to it. Um, Michael Murphy, another bad egg. Yeah, I think he definitely qualifies for the title of bad egg, all right. I mean, I think this is, this is a guy who was an Irish, uh, he's an Irish native, um, but he, he, he was actually, he was again, he was one of these guys who got an indeterminate sentence in the UK in 1994. He raped a woman and then killed her, you know, stabbing her 33 times. And he was detained in a secure mental institution. Um, sorry, that's the right way to phrase that in Manchester. And, but he escaped in, tw- in 2006. And a year, less than a year later, he ended up in Temple Bar. And he got chatting. Presumably he had a Manchester accent at this stage. He'd grown up, um, he'd grown up there. He'd left Mayo as a, as a young kid. Uh, <clears throat> and I think he, he, he was actually, believe it or not, he was actually convicted of the manslaughter of his own father as well, who was described in court at the time as a violent alcoholic. And he was given an 18-month suspended sentence for that. So this is before he raped the woman in 1994 in Manchester and before he turns up in Temple Bar in 2006. And basically, he met two other, I think, two Irish or two English tourists. They were over two women out in Temple Bar, you know, presumably part of a, a hen or something. And they said, you know, they said, come on, we'll, we'll have a couple more drinks in our room. And there was no, this wasn't like a romantic liaison. This wasn't like, let's come back for sex in, in the bed, you know, in, in the bedroom. It was come back and keep the party going. And uh, the evidence, her, her evidence was that um, her friend fell asleep in the chair and she went to show him out. And just as he was about to walk out, he turned and he punched her full force in the face, dragged her into the bathroom. You know, you know, what do you say? Violently raped her. You don't gently rape someone. But like he, he but there was a, an added element of physical of violence. Like, he, you know, he, he continued to assault her physically as well as raping her. <clears throat> and she was screaming, trying to wake up her friend who, you know, eventually did wake up and then ran screaming into the corridor. He went, he managed to drag her back, I think, she, she, the woman herself tried to get out. She was naked at this stage, <clears throat> and then when a friend ran into the into the corridor, he went after her, and then she was able to escape the room as well. And he was arrested pretty soon after that. So I mean, I mean, like no, it was George Birmingham in this case that uh, was the judge who gave him the life sentence, uh, and he, he described him as a highly dangerous man whose threat to society is ongoing. He said mm-hmm. a life sentence for rape was unusual, but there was exceptional circumstances for what he described as a truly appalling rape. So I mean. This is kind of, I suppose, this is the level you've got to get to, to, to kind of, you know, to, to, to reach that bar, to get, you know, a life sentence mm. for not killing somebody. You know, what's worse? I mean, you can argue that maybe there's a lot more rapists should be getting life sentences and it shouldn't be just, you know, almost the sole preserve of, of killers. Are they mainly housed together then in the prison system? And if they're not, how are they other inmates? How do they behave towards them? You know, you hear these stories about how there is 
hierarchy systems within the prison and even within the sexual offenders community. Some sexual offenders will look down their nose on others and um, see themselves as, you know, as as higher up the, the, the ladder than them. But these guys must be deplored in prison and out. Yeah, well, I suppose the gangland killers are different. Yeah, but certainly, I mean, the sex killers... I mean, the majority of them, as far as I can, I can see, as far as I know, are in the Midlands and in Arbor Hill. I think the much the older guys are in are in Arbor Hill. You know, they're the more, they're less likely to, you know, get involved in physical violence with with other, you know, members of, you know, other people who are who are detained as well. Um, I think the more the more dangerous people, the more manipulative ones are are in the Midlands. So, I mean, the likes of, you know, Graham Dewar would be serving his time in, in the Midlands. I mean. I remember that there was, like there is, like I know from my own information that there is a landing where the, the people on it are considered so manipulative they can't be allowed to mix with other uh, prisoners and not all of them are serving life. You know, mm-hmm. the, I mean, I don't even remember the case. I, again, I'm sorry now, the name escapes me immediately, but there was there's was, there was, there was one guy now, he's, he's serving life for murdering the Blaine brothers in, in Claire Morris. And when he was previously in jail, he was trying to manipulate another vulnerable prisoner into killing himself to the point where he was making up fake, you know, doctor's notes and saying, oh, I stole this in the office and putting it under his cell door and, you know, and, and you know, suggesting that he take his own life. So, I mean, some of these characters are, are horrendous. I mean, you, you know, the, it, 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 I suppose it goes across the entire scale, you know, from the poor, you know, not the poor, but the, you know, the, the bad decision made by, you know, someone who was addicted or sucked into gangland and thought that this is a way out by doing this one thing, all the way up to, you know, people like Graham Dwyer, who, you know, callously and, you know, and horrifically manipulated a vulnerable woman into mm. becoming his victim, so. Yeah, and try uh, and tried to groom others. I'll just help you out with the Blaine brothers, Jack Blaine, 76, his 69-year-old brother, Tom, both died as a result of blunt force trauma following the attack on their home in July 2013, and 32-year-old Alan Cawley of Ballina is serving the life sentence for that. So he was the man you're referring to as the one who tried to convince a fellow inmate to kill himself. And that, that was that was just a horrendous case. I mean, the, the I mean, they were two vulnerable, you know, like pensioners. You know, I, you know, and you know, one, one of them used to call to a nearby pub for a cup of tea. I remember speaking to the bar manager there at the time. Uh, I spoke to a relative as well. You know, I just. As far as I remember, like in, in Collie's case, like he, he'd been out of jail, he'd been out of Castle Ree for for another attack of some some sort, and and he'd been talking to I think it was an American nurse or somebody who was in a bar, and they kind of got a feeling about him and left, and you know so you wonder like you know like it, it really was to some extent a thrill kill like you know it was one of these these people who just went out to see you know what it was going to be like, which actually brings me back to to one of the the, the people who who serving life for not actually killing anyone uh, is Eric Daniels he, he was only he was a young man like he was he was he's now 38 he tried to kill a 10 year old girl in 2001 in Clonmel and he, mm. he took a shoelace out wrapped it around her neck and tried to strangle her and luckily I mean obviously the kid was you know she was a smart young young girl she played dead and he left her alone and walked off and he later told the guards he, he, he wanted to inflict pain he wanted to see what it was like to kill someone so there are people out there, you know, mm. unfortunately, there are people out there who just want to see what it's like to kill someone or, you know, at some point they're getting a sick, you know, thrill out of it. And 
all we can hope is that they're, they're few and far between. Yeah, and that they remain locked up. Now, you know, obviously prisons are there and as a society we believe that people can become reformed characters and can come out and become valuable parts of communities. And, you know, prisons are places that they can reform, that they can, you know, feel remorse, that they can be educated, that they can change their ways. But some of these people I think we've spoken about today, the reason they're on life sentences is because they are very unlikely to reform. And uh, I think the longer those sentences continue, the better for the community. So, Eamon Dillon, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.